Welcome, dearest and blessed listeners, gentle ghosts and ghouls, to Channel FM's very first broadcast. From an eerie, sea and salt-rhined corner of Cornwall, England, a long-forgotten radio signal that drifts across the moors and waves to you, dear listener, Channel FM aims to bring the chilling and the unnerving from all over the world and set it before you in an easy-to-listen-to format. Bizarre true crime, frightening mysteries, cryptid investigations, peculiar and eerie areas of both the world and the internet, and everything else aimed at raising the hairs on the back of your neck. To the freight truck driver on the dark and unfamiliar road, to everyone named Zachariah, and to the student in the old dorm room who feels very uncomfortable looking into that particular corner, you know the one I'm talking about. You all have our special shout out this episode. Today's strangeness is one that, assuming you're listening to this on the shapeless, fathomless, incomprehensible connection we all share named the internet, you yourself can follow and read as you wish. The Charlie Project at charlieproject.org is a database containing the names and stories of over 15,000 missing people, most of which come from the United States. While they don't actively investigate missing persons cases, it serves as, according to the website, a publicity vehicle for missing people who are often neglected by the press and forgotten all too soon. While this doesn't sound disconcerting or unnerving at first, you need only read an entry or two to see just how shocking the circumstances of these disappearances can actually be. For example, Evelyn Grace Hartley is one of the more well-known names within the archive whose disappearance reads like something out of a horror film. Her kidnapping led to one of the biggest searches in Wisconsin history, with suspects ranging from local schoolboys to Ed Gein himself, the notorious murderer and body snatcher dubbed the Butcher of Plainfield by the media. Evelyn Hartley was born on November 23, 1937 in La Crosse, Wisconsin. She was only 14 years old on the 24th of October, 1953, when she disappeared from the home of Professor Vigo Rasmussen, a co-worker of her father's. She was there that night to babysit Rasmussen's 20-month-old daughter, as the parents, and their previously arranged babysitter, would be attending the town's homecoming game. Evelyn brought some four or five school books with her, intending to use the time to study peacefully while the baby slept, but instead encountered something truly terrifying. At 8.30pm, Evelyn was supposed to call her father Richard to check in, a call that never came, and so her father called instead several times and not once received an answer. Understandably concerned, the father left the Rasmussen's home and found what many could only describe as a parent's worst and most horrifying fears made manifest. The doors were locked, the lights and the radio were still on, but upon peering through the windows, Richard saw that there had been clear signs of both a forced entry and a violent struggle. The furniture inside the living room had been disturbed and put out of place, Evelyn's textbooks scattered and violently torn, her glasses and one of her shoes were broken, laying on the floor of the living room, while the other was, strangely, found in the basement. Three windows had pry marks, and though the vast majority of windows had been locked, one at the back of the house was open. The screen for that window had been removed and was leaning against the wall beside it. A short stepladder had been positioned at the window, previously used by the Rasmussens to aid in painting their basement. There was a significant amount of blood both in and outside the home, all of which were Evelyn's blood type. Two large pools of it were in the yard, with one stain being some 18 inches in diameter. 
A bloody handprint adorned the wall of a garage some four feet off the ground, barely a hundred yards from the Rasmussen's home, staining the side of a neighbor's house. The authorities believe that someone took Evelyn through the yard, but they paused to drop her on the ground where the blood pooled, perhaps to gather their breath or energy before continuing on. Sniffer dogs were used to track Evelyn's scent, which ended at Cooley Drive two blocks away from the Rasmussen home, leaving authorities to believe that Evelyn was pulled into a vehicle and driven away. Several days later, various items of clothing, many of which were stained with blood and found at different locations, were identified to also contain blood of Evelyn's type. Over 1,000 members of the community came together to participate in a search for Evelyn, involving police, civil air patrol, and even the Air Force. A vehicle inspection program was also initiated, aimed at inspecting every vehicle in La Crosse County, even asking gas station attendants to search vehicles for bloodstains. Many suspects were questioned over the years, but there was never enough evidence to implicate anyone in Evelyn's abduction. To this day, Evelyn's disappearance still remains unsolved. The reason why I'm speaking to you of this, dear listener, is that this is all real, as are the more than 15,000 other people listed in the Charlie Project. These people, locations, and events are all real. They all happened and mattered. Evelyn was a junior at Central High School when she was abducted. She had straight A's, was involved in many high school activities, played the piano, and sang in the choir at the First Presbyterian Church. A single missing person spotted on a poster or broadcast over the Amber Alert is enough to raise the hairs on the back of your neck, but it's all too easy to become lost, as I had, in the unseen, silent missing people listed in the project. To see their smiling faces look back at you with each page, and to wonder just what happened to each and every one of them. If you're interested, I would encourage you to go to the website and take a look for yourself. You can also follow their WordPress blog, Facebook, and Twitter accounts. You never know, a random chance encounter or seemingly innocuous meeting or sighting might provide the key to a cold case you never knew existed. Speaking of the cold, we move on to the segment of today's unnerving news, with the notice that the Endurance, the Barkentine vessel sailed by famous Antarctic explorer Ernest Shackleton, was finally found by deep sea search team Endurance 22 more than a century after it disappeared beneath the water and ice, and was also, as it happens, discovered on the 100th anniversary of Shackleton's funeral. Found in an area that Shackleton himself described as the worst portion of sea in the world, the Endurance came to rest there after it was forced adrift and then crushed by polar pack ice. The crew decamped along with the necessary supplies and equipment and were forced to watch powerless as the chaotic and unpredictable changes in ice and water tossed and turned the ship, breaking apart the rigging, masts, and puncturing a portion of the hull over a period of months. The final moments of the ship's destruction were actually captured by the expedition's photographer, Frank Hurley, and I would encourage everyone here to view it on YouTube. Search for The End of the Endurance, 1915, on the channel BFI. And while you're viewing, I would encourage you to seek out some of the videos and photographs taken of the wreckage as the team found it. It is marvellously well preserved, as the freezing waters are far too cold for much of the wood-eating organisms to exist. It's an eerie and strange thing, seeing the name Endurance still emblazoned brightly on the side of the vessel, resting in the inky black some 3,000 metres below the water's surface. A once beautiful thing of exquisite craftsmanship, 
broken by nature untamed and resting now in the grime and detritus of the deep ocean floor, undisturbed by the cruel ravages of decay and time. As with all our news, give it a Google and see for yourself. Seeing is, after all, believing. With that, we move swiftly onto the cryptid of the week, and one that is well known here in the United Kingdom, the Beast of Bodmin Moor. For those that haven't heard the term before, a cryptid refers to an animal, beast, creature, etc. whose existence is claimed by witnesses but unproven by mainstream science, such as, and I already know I'm going to get angry emails for using these as examples, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, the Chupacabra, these sorts of creatures. Now, let me paint you a mental picture, dear listener, that is often given to those interested in this dark beast. Imagine for a moment that you, a prisoner of Bodmin Jail, a cold and distant prison, have just escaped in a daring feat of cunning, guile, and violence. You flee from the lights of your captors into the dark and misty moors, rolling fields and valleys of green and brown punctuated only by the dramatic tours of granite and thin rivers, and nothing else for as far as the eye can see in any direction. There are plenty of crags, caves, and nooks that one such as yourself could hide away in. Any search party would be foolish to walk in unprepared, and as such, you know that you are likely safe, for the moment, from any man-made hazards. The only dangers you see immediately are the terrain itself, the cold, the dark, and the lack of food. You know that birds nest and edible flora grows within the moors, so you resign yourself to finding some of it, tomorrow, when the sun rises. Soon enough, a blanket of fog drifts across the moors, and not a moment too soon. You found a little corner for yourself, a crevice of rock too shallow to be a cave, but at least it keeps the chill wind off you. There is nothing here, no braying or birdsong, only the silence of the moor and the howling wind whenever it rises. And it is in the middle of this quiet contemplation that you notice it for the first time. Two golden dots in the mist look upon you. You assume it at first to be a trick of the dim light, after all you'd heard nothing approach or shift save yourself in the time you'd been setting up your makeshift camp. You smile at your foolishness, the hairs risen on the back of your neck in immediate and primal fear and chastise your own silliness. You take a deep breath to regain composure and look for them again, only to find that they're not there. The shifting of stones around your granite crevice begins fear and panic, knowing that you have nowhere to go. And finally, the beast emerges from the veil of fog and sees you just as clearly as you see it. A large cat-like creature, similar to a panther or leopard with fur the colour of darkest starless midnight and eyes of a striking yellow gold. Sharp, prominent teeth as long as any of your fingers, paws as each as large as your face, and a powerful build that you know would make no effort in tearing you limb from limb. You have just met the mythical beast of Bodmin Moor, and, unwittingly, you are to become yet another name in its long and deadly history. In reality, however, the evidence that such a beast exists is checkered to say the best. There's no doubt that the moors are a scary place, and exactly the sort of place one could picture strange and terrible things happening. Even a Sherlock Holmes story, The Hound of the Baskervilles, takes place in the matching setting of Dartmoor in England. 
That story uses diabolical and supernatural hounds instead of large cats, but it's possible, if not likely, that the Sherlock Holmes story has inspired some tales of the beast. Sightings of the creature still occur frequently to this day, with one website claiming of 60 sightings of a black panther-like creature, supposedly 3 to 5 feet long, prowling the moors and mutilating the livestock that live there. The evidence was enough that in 1995, the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food conducted an official investigation into the creature. The investigations, fortunately for most, found that there was no verifiable evidence of exotic felines loose in Britain, and that the mauled farm animals were likely attacked by local species. Strangely enough, however, less than a week after this study was published, the public were amazed by a young boy out on a walk by the River Fowey that stumbled upon a large cat skull measuring some 4 inches long by 7 inches wide. The skull was lacking its lower jaw, but still possessed three large canines that suggested it could indeed be a leopard. Eventually, this was discovered to have been an imported skull, likely part of a rug of some sort, and the hysteria faded for a moment. There's always more supposed evidence coming forward now and then, however. Photographs of large black felines, strange faecal matter, livestock attacks. But what's your opinion, dear listener? Is this simply a case of mistaken identity, or are there indeed deadly prowlers on the moors? Leave a comment if you're able, and perhaps start a civil discussion. If you have a subject you want to talk about, a story you want read on the air, or a particular cryptid investigated, then reach out to me at channelfm at gmail.com. We've come to the end of our show for this week, however, and I'll end it by bidding you all adieu with a frightening fact. Below the summit of Mount Everest is an area known as Rainbow Valley. While this sounds like a serene and picturesque area, it's actually named after the many different bright colours of winter wear worn by the corpses of the mountain climbers that perished just before reaching the peak. Sweet dreams, and a pleasant night to you all. All the music in this episode was created by Kevin MacLeod and are licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. The songs used were SCP-5X5, With the Sea, and This House. His website is in Computech.com, and he offers a fine collection of royalty-free music. Take a look. <laughs>